0: Today I'm continuing a series talking about financial stewardship. And I tell you, I have really enjoyed the things that I've been teaching. These are things that God has spoken to me that have made a big difference in my life. Today I want to turn over to Luke chapter 16 and go into this parable about the unjust steward. And I've mentioned this a couple of times already in this teaching, but we haven't actually talked through this. This parable is one of the hardest to understand. And really, you have to have quite a revelation on prosperity before you can really understand what this is talking about. And so I think that as we go through this, that this really has the potential of making a big difference in the way you view money and the way uh, you use money. So let's look at this in Luke chapter 16, verse 1. It says, And he said also unto his disciples, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, And the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. All this is is saying that a person who is wealthy had a person working for him managing his money. He had been accused that he was stealing money from him. So he said, basically, put your books in order. Come in here and show me everything. And if what you've been accused of is true, then you're going to be fired. And in verse 3 it says, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship I cannot dig to beg. I'm ashamed. Now in verse 3 we see by the reaction of this steward that he was guilty because there was no statement about I'm innocent. How can I prove my innocence or how can I do any of these things? He knew that when he was called into account and when his master looked at the books that he'd be fired. So... Uh, This is basically an admission of guilt on the steward's part. And notice also he says, um, I cannot dig to beg I'm ashamed. Probably most people that have his attitude towards finances where he was stealing money and instead of working and doing things like this, it's probably not true that he couldn't dig. It was probably more true to say that he wouldn't dig. You'll find out that a lot of people that have problems in this area of finances and uh, things, people who still... It's not that they couldn't work. It's that they're lazy. They're looking for a quick fix. They're looking to win the lottery. And I might as well say some things here. I've probably already driven lots of people away with all the stuff I've said. But I tell you what, if you're playing the lottery and looking to win from that, you got a wrong attitude towards finances. That is never God's system. It's not that it's necessarily sin or anything, but it is a compromise. It's not God's way of wealth. And anybody who's buying lottery tickets, you do not have a revelation on prosperity based on the Word. Now, you may not like me for that, but it's the truth. Galatians 4.16 says, Am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? It's the truth. And if you'll stick with me as we go through this system, I'll even teach on that and show you why gambling And expecting to get rich quick is never God's system of prosperity. It's an ungodly thing. And even if somehow or another you were to strike it rich or win the lottery, the scripture says that wealth gotten by vanity takes away the life of the owners thereof. So it's not a matter of about just getting money however you can. There's a right and a wrong way to prosper. And even if you did hit the lottery and if you did prosper somehow, if you didn't do it through God's system, which the lottery is never God's system, then it would take away your life. And so that's not the right way to prosper. So anyway, people who are lazy tend to steal, look for the lottery, look for something... And I know that there's going to be people criticize me and say, you don't understand my situation. There could be an exception with as many people viewing this program around the world. There's probably exceptions to everything. But as a general rule, it's... uh, Matter of fact, I could give you statistics that the people who buy lottery tickets, about 80 to 90% of them are all in the poverty level. It's poor people that are looking for a lottery. People that have money... They value money differently. They think about money differently, and they don't waste money throwing it away on buying a lottery ticket. Have you ever heard those commercials where they say the chances in winning are one out of 520 million? And I just think, whoever would go for that and spend money on something like that with the odds so stacked against you... No wonder you aren't prospering if that's the kind of stuff that you give your money to. And somebody says, well, it's just a few dollars. I mean, what's it going to hurt? It's the principle of the thing. A person that has strong convictions and strong financial principles, you just don't deviate from them even for just a few dollars here and things like that. Anyway, the point that I'm making is this guy said, I cannot dig. I'm sure he could have gone out and got a job if he wanted to, but you know what? That's not the way he thought He didn't want to work to get his money. He wanted to steal it or he wanted to buy a lottery ticket or he wanted to inherit it or something. He's always looking for some scheme instead of just believing that God would bless his work. And then he said, to beg, I'm ashamed. You know, it's a shame that he wasn't afraid to steal or ashamed to steal. He wasn't ashamed to steal. He was ashamed to beg. You ought to be just as ashamed of stealing as you are of begging. Man, it's amazing how we have selective conscience in this area. And so, because he was ashamed to beg and he wouldn't go work, he says, I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. Now, this parable goes on and only lists two, or two uh, people who owed his master money And it only lists two of them, but it says that he called every one of them. So it's possible that they just gave two as an example of what he did, but apparently he called in every one. And if his master was truly a rich man, I know that if I only had two people that owed me money, I probably wouldn't hire somebody else to run my financial affairs. So it's probable that this guy had dozens, maybe hundreds of people. He was a very rich man. And so this, he called in every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. And he said unto the first, how much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, take thy bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then said he to another, and how much owest thou? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take thy bill and write fourscore. So what he did, this is showing two examples. He called in these people who owed his master money, and he told one, he says, just cut your debt in half. Here's a new agreement. Let's write this out. And instead of saying that you owe 100 measures of oil, let's cut it down to 50. And then another one, uh, he said, how much do you owe? And he said, 100 measures of wheat. And he says, right, four scores. So he discounted it, 20%. So basically, this is just showing that he started discounting people's debts to his master while he still had that position of authority. And here's the logic behind it. He said, I'm doing this so that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. In other words, he wasn't going to go work. He was too lazy to work. He wasn't going to beg. He was too ashamed to do that. So what he decided to do, he still was stealing money from his master. He didn't quit stealing money. But this time, instead of putting the money in his pocket, he put the money in the pocket of people who owed his master money. He discounted their accounts i don 't know how much a hundred measures of oil is worth, but it could have been worth three four hundred thousand dollars, and you just gave away say one hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars to this person and He did this to every one of his lords. Uh, debtors. And so that means there could have been dozens, maybe a hundred people that he just gave his master's money away to them. And the logic behind it was that when he got fired, he'd be able to go knock on their door and say, did you hear that I've been fired? Do you remember that I discounted your bill $200,000? Could you help me out here? Could I stay with you for a week or two? Would you feed me and help me get back on my feet? And he would have dozens or hundreds of people like this and he'd just be able to mooch off of these people. That's what he was doing. So, you know, up until this point in this story, there really isn't anything hard to understand or unusual about this. People steal money all of the time from their employers and um, it's really not unusual what he's done. But what is really unusual is his master's reaction to this. Look at this in verse 8. It says the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now this is what makes this parable hard to understand. The first part where he's stealing money from his master and he gets called on the carpet and he still steals some more but this time he gives it to other people That's not so unusual. What is really strange is the master's reaction where it says he commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now what did this man do that was wise? He was still stealing money. This isn't the Lord's approval on dishonesty. But the point that's being made here is an attitude towards money. Prior to this time, prior to the master calling this steward in and saying, set your books in order and I'm going to look at them and if you're guilty, you're fired. Prior to that time, when he thought he was getting away with it, he stole money from his master. And there's no telling how much money he stole, but let's just say it was $100,000 or 200 dollars or $500,000. Could have been more. If he stole all of this, did you know he didn't have anything to show for it? Now, that's evident because in the third verse, when he knew that he was going to be fired from his job, the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg. I'm ashamed. In other words, if he would have been stealing money from his master, but if he would have taken that stolen money and have invested it, put it in a bank account been buying stocks, making some type of investment, he wouldn't have had this attitude. He wouldn't have even had to think about begging. He would have been able to live off of that money that he had stolen. But this says that he had taken all of this money that he was stolen, and again, we don't know how much it was, but I'm sure it wasn't a trifling amount. It was a major sum of money, and he had just blown it. He had been buying caviar and DVDs and VCRs and plasma screen televisions, and he had blown it on things. But he didn't have anything to show for it. He didn't have any money, any reserves. And you know why the master commanded this or commended this servant was because even though he was still stealing money, this time he began to recognize the power that was in money to affect his future. Prior to that time, he had stolen money, but he had just blown it on buying things. Now, he, had, he was still stealing money, but this time he was using it and putting it in people's pockets. In a sense, what he was doing was bribing them. He was using the power of money to affect people's lives, to change their attitude towards him, and to affect his future. Now, again, this isn't saying that you're supposed to use your money to bribe people. It's not saying that you're supposed to continue to steal money. But it's illustrating the fact that this guy had a huge... Uh, paradigm shift in the way he looked at money. Prior to that time, he was just using money to blow it on things that you know didn't amount to anything, just satisfying his own lust. But once he realized he was about to lose his job, that this cush position that he had been in was going to be taken away from him and he was going to have to deal with reality, all of a sudden he started taking the money he was stealing and he used it to change people, to touch people and affect his future. And this is why the master commended this guy. Because he finally began to start learning the true potential and the true benefit of money. Now this is an amazing fact. You're going to have to think a little bit to be able to get this, but this is powerful. This is powerful stuff. Did you know that the least use of your money... Man, I'm just... I hesitate to say these things because I know some people this is going to go right over your head. Some people you're going to just totally reject what I've got to say. But I ask you to pray about this because I'm going to show you a number of scriptures that will verify this. The least use of your money, the most unimportant use of your money is to just buy temporary things that are just going to meet your needs such as your house, your car, your clothes, your food and things like that. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You have to have those things. You have to have clothes. It's a godly thing to wear clothes. It's a godly thing to eat, not to overeat, but to eat. It's a godly thing to have a house and to have a car, have transportation and be able to get around and function. There's nothing wrong with those things, and so we have to do them. But you ought to have this attitude that, God, that is the least important use of my money is for these physical, natural things. The real true potential of money is to affect your future. I don't know if you get that or not, but that is a powerful statement. Money can affect your future. You can either use money to just survive and live right now, or you can take money, and of course you've got to do certain things to be able to survive and live now, but if you took a portion of that and invested it or did something to affect your future. Did you know that that is a wiser, higher use of your money? Now again, that's not the attitude that most people have. Most people see money as a way of them satisfying their own desires and this is the reason that advertisers advertise the way that they do. They come on and say, for three days only, do this. In other words, they're trying to pressure you to spend it right now And you may not even have a need right now, but it looks so good and you go ahead and you put it on credit. They'll give you interest free for a certain period of time. And our society has come to a place where it's like I can get everything right now and then spend the rest of my life paying for these things that I've already got. That is a wrong mindset. What you need to do is learn how to live less with what you have and not go into debt and not run up all of these bills and take a portion of what you've got and start using that to affect your future. You know, I heard a man say that retirement ought to be the biggest, best vacation that you've ever taken. And what he's trying to get across through that is that sometimes we take away from our future retirement and what we're going to need in our older age and stuff like that, and we just basically spend it all on just enjoying the present. Now, there's a balance between these two. I'm not telling you to keep your nose to the grindstone and not enjoy the journey. But I'm saying that we have gone way out of balance in the other direction so that basically, in the United States at least, I can say this, people are mortgaging their future so that they can enjoy everything right now. And they are just indulging themselves and getting everything they can and they aren't planning for the future. That's the way that this unjust steward was. He had stolen lots of money. No telling how much money he had stolen. But he had just blown it on things. And it's evident because he didn't have anything to fall back on. He was going to be out on the street begging. He had stole large sums of money and didn't have a penny to show for it. That was wrong attitude. Of course, it's wrong to steal, but let's just take the stealing out of the picture. His attitude towards money was just use it to indulge your flesh, to get what I want, to do this, to supply my needs. I'm sure the guy ate well. I'm sure that he dressed well. I'm sure that he had all of the creature comforts that they had available in those days. And that's what his focus was on money for. But when he got... Uh, called on the carpet and he realized he was going to be fired, he had to start thinking about his future. What am I going to do in the future? This is going to look terrible on my resume. Nobody's ever going to hire me. This is the only thing I know how to do is to be a steward and I'll never get another job. And he says, what am I going to do? And he still was stealing money. That wasn't commended. But at least the money he stole, he now began to start... I guarantee you, he didn't go out and buy any new television with this. He didn't buy buy a DVD. He didn't buy any of these little gadgets. This guy took all of the money he stole from that point on and he began to start giving it to people to affect their attitude, to affect the way they felt about him so that when he was fired, he could go out and he could mooch off of these people. And this is why his master commended him. He says, Finally, you're beginning to learn the real use of money. And here is a radical statement that I pray you can listen to and and receive and apply in your life. But when you understand prosperity properly, when you begin to start getting the right attitude about being a steward, did you know money isn't primarily for meeting your immediate needs? Now again... You need to meet your needs. You need to be a faithful witness. You need to pay. God doesn't want you living in a cardboard box somewhere. That's not a good recommendation for Him. So I'm not saying that you don't take care of yourself, but I'm saying that your priority ought to drastically change from just getting things for yourself, taking care of yourself, and your attitude ought to change to where it's all about taking that money to touch other people's lives and to influence your future. Money has power in it. Some people take great offense at this because a lot of religious teaching has actually made it like money is terrible. Matter of fact, uh, it'll even talk down here about... Well, that's in 1 Timothy, I believe, chapter 3, where it talks about filthy lucre, (laughs) which is the old English way of referring to money. And it makes it sound like it's evil like it's sinful, and sometimes religious teaching will make it sound like that, you know, having money, people who are wealthy are just all evil people and things like this. Well, Abraham was super wealthy. Isaac, Jacob were super wealthy. David and Solomon and on and on you could go. It is not ungodly to have money. It's just ungodly when you put your trust in that money instead of your trust in God. And so money has power in it. But the power, most people are using the power and the influence of money for just temporary things. I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. Let's go on and read this next verse. Here's Jesus drawing a uh, conclusion from this parable and making an application to us. Look at what it says here in Luke chapter 16 verse 9. And I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, make to yourselves friends of the mammon, of unrighteousness. That's an old English way for saying money. Use money to make friends that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now this is the purpose of this parable. This is the point that Jesus was trying to get across. He says, now, here's the point. Just like this man, of course, you don't steal your money, but nonetheless, the money that he had, he began to start using it to make friends, to touch people's lives, so that they would receive him into their home. Jesus says in a similar way, you should start using money to touch people's lives so that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. The word that was translated fail here in the King James, it was also translated die other places in the scripture. And that's exactly what this is referring to. This is saying use money to start affecting people's lives so that when you die they will be there to receive you into everlasting habitations. This is talking about when we go to heaven. And so here's the point that he's making. This man, this unjust steward, had stolen money, but all of the money he had stolen, he just blew it on temporary things. Things that in themselves may not have been bad, but he took all of this money that he had stolen and just wasted it Because when he was facing being fired, he didn't have anything to fall back on. He says, I'm going to have to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. So he hadn't saved any. He hadn't prepared for his future. He hadn't used this money to make friends, to touch people's lives. He hadn't shared it with other people. He hadn't done anything except just blow it on temporary carnal things that he felt like he needed at the moment. But when he got under pressure and it looked like he was going to lose his job, he took the money that he had stolen from his master and he began to touch people's lives with it and bless them and make them beholden to him so that when he was fired, he could enter into their house and live with them. The Lord is saying we need to start using money to affect people's lives so that when we die, they will be there to welcome us into heaven. Some of you have probably heard this song before about a man who dreamed he died and went to heaven and when he got to heaven there were all these people lined up and people came up and said thank you for giving to the Lord I'm a life that was changed and he was uh, perplexed at first about what all this meant but they told him that when you gave that money to this missionary he went over to Africa or someplace and he's the one that taught the gospel to me and I'm here today because of your gift thank you for giving to the Lord did you know that that is a dramatization of course But it's exactly what this passage of Scripture is talking about. Jesus is saying that we ought to learn from this parable that there is a better use of our money than just blowing it on things. That we ought to give to touch people's lives, to see people change, so that someday when we enter into heaven, there will be people lined up to say thank you. Did you know that every television you buy is eventually going to die? I mean, it may not physically die like we talk about a person, but I mean, it's going to cease to work. It's going to have to be replaced. And every house that you buy, every car that you buy, all of the clothes that you buy, the jewelry, the rings, the diamonds, everything that we invest so much effort into to get these things, did you know that someday those things are going to wear out? And even if it was something like a family heirloom, like a diamond that's not going to cease to exist... Did you know that someday there's going to be an end of this world and the Lord said that He's going to destroy this earth and everything in it by a fervent heat and even diamonds, jewelry, whatever you've built, whatever monument you have made to yourself is someday going to be totally gone and it will cease to exist. But every bit of money that you use to a touch a person's life, every bit of money that you give into the gospel... And because of it, somebody gets born again. Somebody's life gets changed. A marriage gets put together. A body is healed. Somebody learns the truth and it sets them free. Every person who gets changed because of the money that you give, did you know that that is something that will never cease? It will go throughout eternity. And someday, millions of years after this earth is gone, And I know that some of you don't think this way, but it's what the Scripture teaches and it is going to happen. There is going to be a time that we will be millions of years removed from where we are right now. And everything in this earth life will be a memory. It will be gone. It will be over. You are going to exist for eternity in a future state. Hopefully you are born again and have committed your life to the Lord and you're going to live forever in heaven but if not, there is another place called hell or the lake of fire where people are going to exist. And we are going to live much longer in those realms than we are right here. And did you know that only the money that you took and changed it into something that turned, uh, touched a person's life, that money that you invested in people will continue to pay dividends to you throughout all eternity. People whose lives have been changed will come to you for a million years from now and say, do you remember when you gave that money to whatever church or ministry or you, you could say to the Andrew Womack Ministries and through that television program, I woke up and God spoke to me and my life has changed. Did you know I'm going to be receiving benefits and those of you who've partnered with me and helped me financially to be able to go do these things, we are going to have people come to us for the rest of eternity and tell us about how that our gift touched their life and changed them. And I can guarantee you we are going to be praising God and thanking God that we finally started using our money to invest in the future and touch people's lives instead of just putting it on things that are going to be destroyed. You know, if you could get hold of the truth that I'm saying right here, this would revolutionize, I mean literally revolutionize the way you look at money. Right now, the average person, and again, I know that there's going to be exceptions on both sides of this, but the average person today sees money as a way to get them the temporary things that they need. That's what most people are working for. Most people do not work so that they can have money to be able to touch other people and bless other people and and do things of eternal value. But instead, most people are working so that they can have a house, car, insurance, food, clothes. And again, all of these things are necessary. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have those things, but I'm saying that is not the right motivation. And I know that some of you are listening to me and saying, You live in la la land. This is not the way that it works out in the real world. If you aren't a preacher, you got to work and you got to make a living and you got to pay your bills, and that's what it's all about. Let me show you a scripture where Paul said this exact same thing. Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 28, he says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, and for what purpose? He says, that he may have to give to him that needs. This tells us the reason we aren't supposed to steal, but instead we're supposed to work. Did you know that by contrasting those two things, this is basically saying if you aren't working, you're stealing? I know that blessed a lot of people. Again, I'm aware that there are exceptions just about to everything, and there's some people here that are watching me or listening to me by radio that you're going to take great offense to this. And there you know anybody could need welfare for a brief period of time. Anybody could be in a situation where you just need somebody to help you and I'm not against that. But I am against welfare mentality where people live second, third, fourth generation on nothing but welfare and they are expecting other people. They feel like that the world owes them something and so they're just they aren't working, they aren't doing anything. The scripture says over in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, I believe it's around verse 18, it says, if you don't work, don't eat. Now again, you can help a person temporarily, but a person who just doesn't work because they can make more money off of welfare than they can going down to McDonald's, that is an ungodly principle. You know what that is? That's stealing. That is being a taker instead of a giver. You're a part of the problem instead of a part of the answer to the problem. Now again, I don't want anybody who's got a valid reason. Like, for instance, if you're handicapped and can't work, that's a different situation. I would tell you that you ought to receive the healing power of God and get healed. But until you do, if you can't work, that's understandable. There may be some other exceptions, but there, I would say that there are you know, fringe elements on both ends of this spectrum that have a valid problem. But there is a huge amount of people in the middle that are just living and thinking everybody else owes them something rather than getting out and working. And according to this scripture, you are stealing. You aren't supposed to steal. You aren't supposed to be a taker. You aren't supposed to be a vacuum cleaner that's just sucking the life out of everybody and everything, thinking that everybody owes you something. You ought to be a productive, contributing member to society who's blessing other people instead of just constantly having to live off of other people's blessings. Our welfare system is way out of balance, way out of balance. So it says, don't steal anymore, but rather labor, working with your hands the thing which is good. And here's the purpose, that you may have to give to him that needs. This didn't say labor so that you can pay your bills and that you can keep a roof over your head and that you can feed your children and clothe them. You know, I'm talking as fast as I can and I can't say everything, but over in Matthew chapter 6, I'll deal with this later. The Lord acknowledges that you need clothes and food and a house and shelter and things like this. But He says, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds. They don't labor. They don't work. They don't do any of these things. And God just supernaturally takes care of them. And then He draws this conclusion. He says in Matthew 6:33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things. What things? In context, He's talking about what you eat, where you sleep, what you're clothed with. These things, your physical provision, will be added unto you after you put first the kingdom of God. That's another way of saying the same thing that Ephesians 4.28 is saying. You work for what purpose? So that you can give to other people. And somebody's just thinking, man, if I was to give to other people, if I went out and got a job just so that I could start giving and helping other people, who would take care of me? God. That's what Matthew chapter 6 is all about. You know, this is hard for some people to understand. This is a matter of faith. I can't prove this to you. I can't write a contract and say, if you will do these things, then I guarantee you that you're going to get more money than you ever had before. There's no physical way for me to prove this to you, but this is what the Word teaches, that when you start putting first the kingdom of God, when you do what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 16 where use money to start touching people's lives. Start using money for its highest form. Its highest good is to touch other people's lives so that when you die, they are going to be there in heaven to thank you for the way that you impacted their life through your giving. When you start living that way, when you work so that you can have to give to him that needs, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness then. All of these other things are going to be added unto you. They will come as a byproduct, not the goal. You know what I'm talking about here is a matter of the heart. Some people, if you try and just dissect my words and try and take... So are you saying that I should start giving the majority of my money away here and there? You could sit here and you can gripe and complain and find something to criticize. But if you could listen to the heart of what I'm saying, instead of using your money and putting the major emphasis on, I want a bigger house, I want bigger cars, I want nicer cars, more clothes, diamonds, jewelry, instead of all of these temporary things being the focus of your money. And, oh, by the way, God, thank you for blessing me. Here's a quarter. And so you tip God. You give a dollar or a hundred dollars, or sometimes you may give a thousand dollars. You know, it doesn't matter on the amount that you give. God's not looking at the amount. He's looking at your heart to find out if you're a steward. Are you just tipping God? Are you giving Him what's left over? And I can guarantee you there's a lot of people that that's exactly what they're doing. I've heard this a hundred times from people. They'll hear me minister along these lines and they'll say, I want to give, but I just don't have anything left. I want to give and I promise you, if I ever get any extra, I will. What they're saying is as soon as I get everything I want taken care of, I'll give the Lord whatever's left over just as long as all of my needs get meant first. You know, that's not seeking first the kingdom of God. The Lord is saying you work so that you can use money to give and to bless other people. And the highest form of that giving is to help share the gospel with other people, to tell them the truth, to demonstrate it in word and in deed. When you start doing that, you know what, somehow or another there is a divine flow that takes place And I know that, again, some people uh, will not be able to receive this because this is a matter of faith, but this has happened to me and there are millions of people watching me that could testify to this same thing, that when you start putting first the kingdom of God, instead of you getting everything you want and not giving until all of your needs are taken care of, but you put first the kingdom of God. You give off of your paycheck the first fruits is what the scripture says and Proverbs chapter 11, many different places. It's the first fruits, not the leftover fruits, not what you can spare, not after you've taken care of yourself fruits, but the first fruits. The first thing you do is give to God. You love God and you are demonstrating it by giving to people, touching people's lives, doing things. When you do that first, then God will take care of you better accidentally than you've ever taken care of yourself on purpose before. I know some of you don't believe that, and that's the reason you don't do it, but I'm telling you that this is absolutely true. And this is what Luke chapter 16 and Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28, Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 33, all of these scriptures that I've been using, this is what it's all about. I've already tried to balance this, but I've just got to say this one time again, that this is not saying that God doesn't want you to have nice things and He doesn't want to meet your needs. But it ought to be that your priority should not be on just you. Prosperity is not really just for you. See, this is where I differ from a lot of people, and it's really not a difference in what I'm saying. It's a heart attitude. But there are some people who preach on financial prosperity, but the reason they preach it and the reason they long for it and believe for it so hard is because they see new houses, cars, airplanes, all of these things, and it's all about them, and it's about them having things. They will wear huge diamonds and rings. And there's, again, nothing wrong with people having anything. Boy, I can't tell you everything I know in a brief period of time, but let me just say this real quickly. It really depends on how much is flowing through you. Did you know that if a millionaire was to give away 90% of his income, he still would have $100,000 that he lived off of. Let's say that you're a multimillionaire, that you have $100 million come in, and if you gave away 90% of your income, then you know what? You would still have $10 million per year as your income, and there would be nothing wrong with you living in a million, $2 million home, having a diamond ring, necklaces, jewels that are millions of dollars. God really deals off of percentages. And so I'm not saying that it's wrong to have houses, cars, an airplane, or anything. All of those things in their place are okay. But there's a lot of people who preach prosperity, and the real driving force behind it is that they want the nicest this, they want the nicest this, and they are actually preaching prosperity in a self-serving type of way. It's all about them getting their needs met. Now, I believe that that's wrong. Now, again, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have a lot of things. I have nearly every minister friend that I have has a nicer house, bigger house, fancier cars than I've got, and I don't begrudge that at all. Man, whatever they get, that's just fine. You know, I am not saying that you shouldn't have nice things, but I am saying this, that the priority, the reason to believe for prosperity isn't so that you can have bigger, better, flashiest, everything, but it's so that you could bless other people. And if you would make that your priority, then God would start a supernatural flow towards you. If God can get the money through you to other people, then God will get it to you. And as that money flows through, one hand to receive and one hand to give, as the money flows through, there's always plenty for you. God will just take care of you supernaturally. I am not saying that you're supposed to live poor, but I am saying that you ought to put the priority on helping other people more than you help yourself. Let me give you another scripture that goes along with this. I've already used a a number of these, but in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, it says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Now notice, it says, and this, if you took it in context, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is all talking about money, money not just spiritual blessings and things like this, but money is the context of this. And he says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency that comes because you're blessed financially is what he's talking about. In all things may abound to every good work. This is telling you why God wants to make this grace abound towards you. It's so that you can abound unto every good work so that you can do good things. The definition of prosperity isn't how much you have, not how big a house you have, not how big a you know fancy a car you drive, not how many gold and diamonds and things like this. That's not prosperity. Prosperity is how much of a blessing are you to someone else. That's the way that God evaluates it. And if you're a blessing to other people, there is nothing wrong with you having your needs met. But I'm saying the priority, according to this scripture, the one in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 28... Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 33, the parable of the unjust steward that we were talking about, all of these things are stressing that the priority ought to be on first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That ought to be our first priority is to establish that. And if you would do that, then God will take care of you as an afterthought instead of us taking care of the kingdom of God as an afterthought. You know, again, this is easy to preach, and it's a lot harder to live. There's a lot of people that would say, Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I really do put God first, and the truth is that you're, you're lusting for all of these things. Again, go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. It says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good, that he may have to give to him that needs the reason for your working should be to have to give to him that needs. So let me ask you this. When you go to and apply for a job or when you're sitting down with a budget trying to figure out how much money it is that you need, how many of you first and foremost say, here's how much I want to give. And if your giving is 10% or 15% or whatever it is that you give, well, let's say that you want to give $10,000. That's your goal for next year. Then how many of you sit down and say, well, I've, I really want to give $10,000, therefore I've got to have $100,000 in my business this year. That's what I'm believing for. That's not the way that most people drive themselves. Most people will say, man, I'm, I'm going to buy this house. And to get this house, I've got to pay this much in my mortgage payments. Here's my insurance. Here's my car. Here's my all of this. And you figure out what your necessities are And most people don't even figure a tithe or giving into there. But if you do, it would be probably one of the very last things on the list. Did you know that that's not having this right attitude? You aren't fulfilling the admonition that Jesus gave in Luke 16 about use money to touch people's lives so that when you fail, they might receive you into everlasting habitations. You know, just think about it this way. This is a great privilege to take something temporary, money, whether it's coins or paper. Did you know it's just man-made stuff? It it didn't exist in the beginning. If there wasn't a corrupted, sinful world, we wouldn't need money. This is a man's development. It is a carnal thing. Now, it's not of the devil. It's just natural. And uh, if anybody feels that all your money is of the devil, well, then send it all to me, praise God, and I'll find a place to use it. (laughs) But I'm saying money in itself is not evil, It's just whatever you do with it. But it is temporary and it's just physical. It's natural. Someday this whole earth and everything is going to be dissolved and all that money is going to be gone. So every bit of money, every bit of wealth, every car, every house, every tangible asset that we've got is someday going to be gone. But right now we have the privilege of taking something that is only temporary and is someday going to be dissolved and gone. And if you will give it, in the name of the Lord, and touch a person's life. You can take something that is tangible, temporary, and turn it into something intangible and eternal. Man, I don't know if you get that. But that is a great privilege. To take something that is just going to be gone someday, and instead of letting it just be gone, you can turn it into something that will never die. You can take something that is going to be destroyed and turn it into something that will never be destroyed. A man is not a fool to take that which he can't keep to give and obtain something that he can never lose. Man, that's a powerful statement. Money you can't keep, but you can give it, and if you give it, then what it produces, you'll never lose. Man, that is one powerful truth. If you look at things from God's standpoint, money is just temporary. It is going to pass away. But we have the privilege right now of either taking that money and spending it on other temporary things that are going to pass away. And in the end result, there will be nothing to show for it. You know, I don't know what the average person gets. But I have heard that it's over $250,000 or something in a lifetime. It could be much, much higher than that. Half a million dollars. And did you know that there are going to be many, many, many people that at the end of their life, when we stand before God, they will have had a a half a million dollars or maybe a million dollars or more passed through their hands. And yet there won't be anything of eternal value to show for it. Nothing eternal left. But they're going to be invested in cars, in, in stereos, in DVDs, in things that are all gone and someday those things will be nothing. So right now we have the a, a privilege of taking something that is going to be totally destroyed and done away with and redeeming that and converting it into something that will never be done away with. Boy, if you understand that, you know what the right response to this message ought to be? It ought to be, God, how much do I have to have to be able to live? And again, I'm not talking about living in a cardboard box somewhere. That's not going to glorify God. I'm not saying that God is El Cheapo. He is El Shaddai, not El Cheapo. I'm not saying that God doesn't want you to drive a nice car, live in a nice house. But I'm saying... How many beds can you sleep in when, you know, one couple has ten bedrooms and all of this stuff? What is the real practical benefit of that? What is the point of having four, five, six cars for two people? I mean, you can't drive but one at a time. If you understood what I'm saying properly and you understood that being a steward is taking this gift that God has given us of finances. And yes, He wants you to take care of yourself. And yes, He wants you to take care of yourself in a proper way. God is not cheap. But He does have different priorities than we do. If you understood this properly, you would say, God, how little do I have to have to live on? Do I really need a new house, you know, and increase my indebtedness by a quarter of a million dollars? over what it is right now, do I really need that or am I just... can I be content and happy where I am? Do I really need the fifth television in my house? Do I really need all of these things? And instead of just spending and then giving God something that's left over, your attitude would be, God, what do I really need to be able to survive and and live the way that would glorify you? And then how much can I possibly put into the kingdom of God and convert to something of eternal value? That would be a proper response to what we're talking about. And I know that there's some of you listening to this that haven't understood what I'm saying and because of it, you're thinking, boy, you're just talking about me giving away everything I've got and I'd have nothing. And If I don't take care of me, if I don't take care of myself, nobody else is going to take care of me. Well, if you don't have faith in God, I guess that's true. But if you do have faith in God and when you begin to honor the Lord with your first fruits and with the increase of all of your substance, God will make your barns to be filled. Your presses will overflow with new wine. That's what it says, I believe, in Proverbs chapter 11. When you start honoring God first, God will cause a supernatural flow of finances towards you. Let me turn over to Matthew chapter 6. I've referred to these passages, but I just want to read some of this to you. In Matthew chapter 6, in verse 19, it says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Now to be honest and to put all of this in balance, there are scriptures that talk about that a godly man will leave an inheritance to his children and unto his children's children, grandchildren. So you couldn't do that if you didn't have any savings or something. The Scripture says in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that the Lord will bless you in your basket and in your store. That's talking about like a savings account. So this isn't saying that you shouldn't have any reserves, but it's just talking again about priorities. Your priority shouldn't be on accumulating all of this wealth here, but rather it ought to be on eternal things and using your money to benefit the kingdom and eternal values. And in verse 20, he says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, this is an amazing statement. There are some people, you've probably heard this statement before, that you can't take it, talking of money, with you. The Bible says that you came into the world naked and it's certain that you can take nothing out of this world. Another way of saying it is, I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Of course, those of you that are in foreign countries won't know what a U-Haul is, but that's a moving Vehicle that you rent to take all of your possessions from one house to the next. And I've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. In other words, you cannot take money with you. Therefore, some people believe that there is no such thing as treasures in heaven. But this says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through and steal. And again, if you take the context of Matthew chapter 6, this isn't just talking about in a spiritual sense. Now, it may include that, but this is talking about money. You can't take money with you to heaven, but in a sense, you can send it ahead. Not in the form of currency, but what you can do is take that money and give it to people to help them understand about God. You can change their life and that person becomes your treasure. You change that money into a changed life and throughout all eternity, you will have treasure in heaven and nobody can steal that from you. Anything that you lay up here on the earth, the stock market could crash, your bank could go bankrupt, you could have an unexpected need come up that would drain off all of your retirement. Did you know that there is no totally safe investment or way to save money in this earth? But everything you put into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is going to come back to you a hundredfold in this life, Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, and in the world to come, you will have eternal life. You'll have people thanking you throughout all eternity for what you've done. Again, if you can understand what I'm saying, this will change your attitude towards money and it'll be like, God, how little do I have to spend on myself and how much can I turn into something of eternal value? He goes on to say in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And he goes on and he talks about that... uh, that you look at the lilies of the field. Solomon never was as beautiful as a single lily. And yet God is the one that produced all of that. Think about the birds. None of you have ever read in the paper about a hundred million birds died yesterday. You'll never read that because God takes care of those birds. If God takes care for a bird, if He takes care of the grass of the field, how much more will He take care of you, O you of little faith, And then he said this in verse 33, "...but seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things," talking about where you eat, where you sleep, what you're clothed with, "...will be added unto you." That says that if you will seek first the kingdom of God. This isn't just talking about Bible study and prayer and going to church. Those things could be included. But in the context, he's talking about with your finances. Don't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. And if you will do that first and foremost with your finances, then God will add these other physical needs unto you. Now there's a lot of you that this is going to go right over your head because this takes a supernatural revelation from the Holy Spirit to understand what I'm about to say. But what these verses are really saying is that when you get to where the priority on your finances isn't for you, but rather it's to bless someone else, then God will assume the liability of taking care of you. And when God takes care of you, He will take care of you better than you would ever take care of yourself. It's absolutely true. I know some of you, again, that's it just takes a revelation from God to get that, And so I don't guess I need to dwell on it because either God's going to quicken it to you or you won't get it. But if you're one of these that struggles and you just work and it seems like that you always have more month left than you have money and you're always coming up short, then you haven't sought first the kingdom of God because God's not supernatural. There isn't a supernatural flow taking care of you. It's all your effort. You just are struggling, struggling, struggling. But when you turn this around, and it's a hard attitude, When you turn this around and you begin to truly start living to bless somebody else more than you live to bless yourself. Now that's not saying that you don't take care of yourself and your family. That's not saying that you don't abuse your family and have them go without and you go feed somebody else. You've got a responsibility. If you don't take care of your own, especially those of your own house, you're worse than an infidel and hath denied the faith, is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So I'm not telling you that you just abuse yourself and take care of other people. But I'm saying that your heart desire is to actually bless other people with your finances more than you bless yourself. When that's your heart's desire, that's seeking first the kingdom of God in the area of your finances. And when that happens, God will supernaturally take care of you. Did you know I've given away over six cars I've actually bought brand new cars for other people and made their payments for five years to pay for their car when I could have used one myself. Now, I'm not saying this to get a pat on the back. I'm using this to illustrate something. I didn't do that for any ulterior motive, but I did it because of an attitude that I'm describing. And did you know when I did that, I went 12 years, I think it was, that I had other people buy my cars for me and make all of my payments for 12 years. And they were nice cars. I didn't do it for that reason. I did it because I genuinely wanted to bless somebody else. But you know what? It's true that when you put first the kingdom of God, God will take care of your needs supernaturally. If you want to have God assume all of your liabilities, then you know what? Put first the kingdom of God in your finances. Let me go back to this parable of the... Unjust steward in Luke chapter 16. And I've already talked about some of these things, but I want to point out uh, something that I missed or skipped over. In verse 8, this is what really makes this parable a little hard to understand. In verse 8, the master of this unjust steward commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. So we talked about what it was that the unjust steward did that merited this commendation. But here's another point I want to point out, and this is a great truth in itself. Now think about this, and this will take some effort on your part to be able to get this, but this is a great lesson to learn from this passage. Think about the master of this unjust steward who commended him because he had changed his attitude towards money and he had started using it instead of for temporary things, he had started using it for eternal things. Now think about this. How many of you, if you caught somebody breaking into your house and stealing something, how many of you would be detached enough from your money or from your possessions that you could find something to compliment the thief over? I mean, how many of you would come up and find this guy right in the middle of stealing all of your jewelry or ripping off your TV, VCR, whatever it is, and you'd say, you know, I want to compliment you. I thought I had a fool proof security system and you went past it and you brought you did a great job you have done a wonderful job breaking in or how many of you would say well man you know what you were so quiet I didn't even know you were here at first you have really done a good job of course everybody I'm sure is saying no way you know what if somebody was stealing your stuff I can guarantee you most of us would immediately just feel such a loss. We would feel such an injustice done unto us, a violation of ourself that we would just be livid. We wouldn't think about where they were coming from. If they had a desperate need that they were trying to... You wouldn't care about them. You wouldn't care what was going on. The average person, if you caught somebody stealing from you, you would just hit the roof because you would see your stuff going out the door. And this goes back to the very first point that I made talking about this that, see, this man saw himself as a steward. Even though he had a steward working for him, he recognized it was just God's blessing on him that had prospered him. And he was detached enough from his stuff that his security and his trust wasn't in the money. And you can see that by his attitude. He was detached enough that he could sit there and do something to help the person who was stealing money from him. Again, very few people would have that attitude because very few people have truly seen that money isn't the important thing. I know somebody right there just saying, "Oh, this guy's crazy." I, again, it's going to take the Holy Ghost to impart this to you, so I'm asking you to open up your heart and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. But here is a radical truth. And this is one of the things that I see out of this master of the unjust steward that just really ministers to me. This man had come to recognize that money isn't really the important thing. But rather, it's the blessing of God, the favor of God upon your life that produces money that is the real asset. I don't know if you got that or not. Most people would look at their things and they count their savings, they count their investment, they count their retirement fund, the college fund for their kids. They count all of these kind of things and that's what they look at as being their real worth. But you know what? Those things are just an expression or a physical manifestation of what the real worth is. The real worth is the favor of God. We could go all the way back to the teaching on Abraham And Abraham received this blessing from God in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And he said, I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. It was that spoken favor of God on Abraham's life that was the real value. That's what was really important. And because God's favor was on Abraham, then he could give away all of the loot from a conquest that he had all of the bounty and spoil. He gave away millions of dollars worth. And it didn't matter because that was just stuff. He still had the favor of God. And because of it, he just began to prosper so much so that entire nations asked him to leave because he was more prosperous than the entire nation. Here's a passage of Scripture. I've already used this in this teaching, but look at this again. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 18. It says, Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is He that giveth thee power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant, which He sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. Now look carefully at this verse. It says, it is God that gives you power to get wealth. Now here's a radical statement. God doesn't give you money. If you're praying and asking God to give you money, He's not going to do it. First place, God doesn't have any money. In heaven, they don't have money. You know what? Where's God going to go get it? He'd have to steal it or counterfeit it. He's not going to do that. This doesn't say that God gives you wealth. He gives you power to get wealth. What this is speaking of is that He gives you His favor. He speaks His blessing over you. There is an anointing that God puts into your life that enables you to prosper and produce wealth. But the wealth that is produced is not the real asset, it's that favor, the power of God that produced the wealth that is the real thing. <laughs> Man, again, I know that some people are just struggling and you're saying, this doesn't make sense. It only makes sense to people who have a revelation from God, and the Holy Spirit imparts this to you. if you are just looking at things in the natural and aren't realizing God is your source, if you don't see yourself as a steward of God's resources, then this isn't going to make sense to you. And when somebody comes and steals something from you, you are going to hit the roof and just be so upset because there goes your wealth. There goes the thing that is valuable in your life. But you can reach a place to where money isn't really the important thing. But rather, it's the blessing of God, the favor of God, the goodness of God on your life that produces money. That's the real asset. Again, I'm not sure that some of you get this, but this, this is a powerful truth. It's worth the effort to get. If you could do this and move beyond looking at things as being your real asset, your real asset is the favor of God. Like it says in Deuteronomy 8.18, God gives you power to get wealth. Therefore, you guard that power. You guard the favor of God. You cooperate. You seek God. You're sensitive to God because it's your relationship with God and the favor of God that has been placed upon you that truly is prosperity. That's what real prosperity is. You know, matter of fact, I couldn't find the verse right now, but it's in the scripture. I'd have to look it up But it says that a man who has all of this wealth and riches and yet doesn't have peace in his heart to be able to partake of it, that that is vanity. And it is is a terrible tragedy done. And you see that all of the time. People who somehow or another stumble into wealth and yet they don't have a relationship with God. They don't have the favor of God. They're fearful that they're going to lose their wealth, that there will be a downturn in the economy or whatever. But on the other hand, you could have a person that has the true wealth, which is the blessing and the anointing of God. They have a relationship with God. They know that God is for them. You could take everything that that person has and they could still be happy because they have the power that produced all of these things that they had just lost and they'll get it back again. You can literally live that way to where you are not tied to and servant to money. Money is nothing but rather it's the blessing and the favor of God on you that is going to produce wealth that is the real asset. And I think you can see this in this master of this unjust steward. Boy, that speaks volumes to me that this man did not really see money as the great asset, but rather he knew that God was his source, that God had blessed him. And and somebody could come and steal from him and it didn't matter because there was more where that came from. Money isn't the important thing, but rather it's the blessing of God upon our life that is the real value. What a wonderful truth. You know, it took me a while to come to that place and I'm not saying that I'm perfect there, but I am seeing this and I'm seeing it work in my life. You know, in the year 2002, my wife and I, we live 35 miles west of Colorado Springs up in the mountains and we live out in the forest. We have... 26 and a half acres on our property, thousands of trees, and we had a drought in Colorado during that year. And because of it, there was a wildfire that started about eight miles from our house in Colorado Springs, which was nearly 40 miles away. Some of my staff that lived down here in Colorado Springs had ash and smoke that, uh, you know, just was it was all over this area. We were so close to it, it actually went up over us, and we didn't get any of the ash or the smoke. But that fire was so close that they evacuated us, and for two weeks we were evacuated from our house, and by law we could not go back there. And so right before we evacuated, Jamie and I got some of our pictures and important papers that couldn't be replaced. We thought about getting you know, some big truck to move everything out. Some of our neighbors did that. But you know what we decided? We just decided that you know there wasn't any guarantee the thing was going to burn in the first place. We had prayed over it, and we were believing God for protection over our property. But it really was useless. We couldn't have moved everything in just one day's time. And so we just decided to leave all that stuff there. Got only the important things that could not be replaced. And then as we were getting ready to leave, I spoke over that property. I spoke protection around it, loosed the angels of God. I believed we were coming back. But as we were leaving that property, Jamie looked at me and she says, you know, I believe that God is going to protect our house and this property. And I believe that we're going to come back and our house will still be here. But then she said, you know, if it didn't happen and if we lost everything, if our house was burnt to the ground and we lost everything, she says, it's just stuff. She says, we could get it all back. It'd be fun to redo it all. And of course, most of you don't have a clue what our house is like. It's not a real fancy house, it's about 3,000 square feet. But my wife has knickknacks, things in there. If we were to move, it would take one truck to move her knickknacks and then another truck for the house furniture. I mean, she's got hundreds, thousands of things in there that it would be nearly impossible. And yet, she didn't see that as being our wealth. That was just an expression of the blessing that God has placed upon us. You know what the real asset was? We know that God loves us, that God is our source, and if, they, if that fire would have taken everything from us and we would have had nothing, it would have been just a matter of time until we would have had it all back with interest. Now some of you think, oh yeah, it's easy for you to say. But I'm telling you in the face, I mean we could see the smoke, we could see the flames from that fire from our house. And yet in the face of that, we sat there and said, it's just stuff. If we lose it, we'll get it all back. You can sit there and criticize that and say I'm not sincere, but that is absolutely true with me. You know, right now, we've taken a huge step of faith in the last couple of years, and we've moved into this building. We have about a $7 million or more, maybe $8 million facility here, and we owe less than $3 million on the whole thing. And you know what? I could lose it all tomorrow, and I guarantee you I'd get it back because the thing that produced all of these assets that we have to help us preach the gospel around the world it's my faith in God it's his blessing upon me and i now see that that is the real asset and that's what i protect that's what i value my things aren't that important you know we've had people steal things from us in this building when we were building it they stole some stuff and You know what? We could have gone after them. We had a builder that stole from us, cost us a lot of money, a lot of headache, a lot of time. And, you know, we did what we had to do to be able to get the building done. But I'm not against people and I'm not out to get them. It's just stuff. I'm not going to rent space into my mind to anybody just because they stole $100,000 from me or something like that. And I know that some of you are thinking, oh, I'd never do that. That's because you place too much value on money. Money is just a tool. It's like a mechanic. You know, you have to have tools to be able to work. But if somebody stole your tools, that'd be a terrible thing. You'd have to replace them. But you know what? The real value is the wisdom, the skill, the abilities that you have. If you're a master mechanic and if you know what's going on, then you know what? Those tools are just tools. They can't take your talent from you. And all you got to do is borrow somebody else's tools for a while, make a few more paintings or whatever, or you know, if you're an artist, if you're a mechanic, fix a few more cars or whatever, and eventually you'll be able to replenish those tools. But you've still got the asset, which is your talent and your ability. Well, in a real sense, the real value isn't money. Money is just a tool to be used, but rather it's the fact that God Almighty loves you and that God has placed a blessing upon your life. And if you ever get that mindset, and if you ever get to where money is not the important thing, but instead you are loving God and seeking God, and you know that God is going to supply all of your needs, and you have confidence in Him, it's your relationship with God that is your real insurance. It's your relationship with God that's your real retirement plan. And as you continue in that relationship, you just obey what God tells you to do and you know that you have to have tools and resources to be able to exist in this physical world. And so, yes, you do need money, but you just view money as a tool, as a resource, then you'll be like this uh, lord of this unjust steward. That if somebody comes and steals from you, instead of being so livid and so angry that you just wind up flying off the handle and doing things... You'll be able to be detached from that because it's just stuff. It's not that important. God gave it to you once. He'll give it back to you. Man, that is powerful. And I tell you what, it gives you such a security. In my own life, this gives me such a peace that, you know, it wouldn't matter if we had a fire or if a tornado came. A good friend of mine, Bob Nichols, many of you have probably heard me talk about him. He and Joy have been a great friend of mine. They had a facility in Fort Worth, Texas that was worth, I th- I'm uh, not sure, but I'm thinking it was $15 million or more. dollars. And he had been in ministry for 30-something, nearly 40 years at the time. And in 2001, I think it was, he had a, two tornadoes collide over his building and in, eight, in about 40 seconds, 18, $15 $18 million worth of church facilities were destroyed an entire life of ministry was gone. And I heard about it on the radio. I went on the internet and within one hour of those tornadoes hitting, CNN was interviewing him and it had a picture of him in front of his building with a hard hat on because it was a disaster area. And he was there saying, God didn't do this. The devil did this, but God is going to bless us back. We will have twice as much as before. You know what he was saying? that God was his source, not that money, not the buildings, not the assets. That would have been a good opportunity to sit down and just cry. (laughs) That's what a lot of people would have done. They would have looked at that as, this is 40 years worth of ministry, $15 million worth of facility. He was in his 60s. How is he ever going to recover and spend another 40 years building back and regaining? But you know what? They begin to rejoice. As a matter of fact, the local uh, television stations came to their first service after the destruction of their facility and they were expecting to hear people weeping and wailing and crying and they said it act they, they were surprised. These people acted like they had won the lottery. There was rejoicing, people shouting and praising God. And Pastor Bob Nichols was saying that we're going to have twice as much as we did before. That what the devil meant for evil, God's going to work it together for good. And did you know now it's only been... What's that, four years or something like that? They now had, they had about a, uh, I think it was a 12 acre uh, campus right there in Fort Worth. Now they have about 26 acres, just a few miles from where they were. They're located on Interstate 35W. They have a great location. They had enough extra space, they were able to build a brand new school for all of their students with a gymnasium. Everything is first class. They have facilities that are at least twice as big, twice as nice as what they have, twice as much facility, and it's worth twice as much money, and they've got twice as much of everything. You know why? Because he didn't look at those things as being his real net worth, but rather it was his relationship with God. Faith was the real virtue, and that's what I'm trying to instill in you is that this parable of the unjust steward teaches this, that this man, this rich man, he knew the real value of money. Money is not the important thing. It's the favor of God, this power of God to get wealth that is the real asset. And because of that, he was able to deal uh, logically, unattached emotionally to his money and to his things. So much so that he could even compliment a thief who was taking that stuff from him. Boy, that's a place that we all need to reach. And you know what? You can do that. These truths that I've been talking about, these are life-changing truths. And again, they aren't easily understood, not because it's hard, but just because it's so different than the way that you've thought all of your life. The Lord wants you to put the priority on not using money to just meet your needs and satisfy your short-term goals. But He wants you to start using money to touch people's lives for eternity. And if you'll do that, you will rejoice throughout all eternity. Boy, that is one powerful truth. That's awesome.